Hello, and welcome to episode 75 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you have joined me today. I really appreciate all the listeners who tune in to find out about beekeeping and what's going on in my bee yard and the bee yards of other folks that I interview. I have to start this episode with a sad announcement. In our local community, we lost an absolutely vibrant, bright light. Sarah McKinney passed away recently in a car accident. Sarah was the owner of Honey in the Hive in Weaverville. She leaves behind her beloved Brian Fisher, who you have heard on this podcast, another wonderful North Carolina bee legend, and also two lovely, lovely young people, her children. Sarah touched so many people in her life as a beekeeper, and that's the only place I knew her. I was not a close friend, a close personal friend of Sarah, but I ran into her a lot and interacted with her on the phone about bee equipment or in the store or planning teaching sessions. Sarah was very momentous in my beekeeping life because she gave me the first opportunity I ever had to teach a class in real life at her bee store, which at the time was Wild Mountain Bees and was later renamed Honey in the Hive. That was a big step for me, and I will say it was a prelude to this podcast because I really, really enjoy teaching and talking about bees, and that's probably where I discovered it was in Sarah's shop at the class that she set up for me. There are so many people in this community that have been touched by Sarah's love of bees, her absolutely vibrant personality and liveliness, and uh, it is a huge, huge loss. Even in her short, way too short life, she touched so many people and made such a beautiful difference in this world. Her memory will be a blessing to us all. So thank you, Sarah. In happier news of recent, I had the lovely opportunity to tune in to the Georgia Beekeepers Conference. (laughs) And you guys know I've been hard on Georgia, not for anything they, they do wrong, but because so many North Carolina people tend to get their packages and their bees from Georgia, which as you all know, I have opinions about. But the Georgia Beekeeping Conference, they did it all on Zoom, which in itself was a pretty amazing feat. It was $15 for two days of speakers and presentations, names that you will recognize. Keep an eye on your state conference and other states' conference of what might be coming available. One of the strange, tiny silver linings of this strange pandemic year might be that a lot more stuff is being made available online and, interestingly, being made available a lot cheaper than usual. That conference was $15. I haven't heard that North Carolina, sadly, is doing anything. I'm, I'm pretty sad about North Carolina not doing anything because we have such a well beekeeper activity and energy here. So if any of you know of other clubs in the U.S. that are, are doing online presentations that are open to everybody and especially the ones that are very reasonably priced, I would love to hear about those. That just sounds really fun to me to do. Without the travel, that works really well for my schedule. So let me know. It, my email is blueridge714, B-L-U-E-R-I-D-G-E 714 at gmail.com. So let me know if you hear of any. And the reason I'm telling you this is because a wonderful loyal listener sent me a note that the National Honey Show, that's the national conference for the United Kingdom, I think that is held in London every year. It is a wealth of information. Lucky for us, it's in English. Also lucky for us, their 
well, for many of us and for some of us a lot, their climate is uh, not so far removed from our own. And there are areas of the U.S. that are very similar to their to their climate. Here in Western North Carolina, if we pay attention to the Irish and the Scottish beekeepers, we hear about weather, cold, not but not terribly cold, up and down, cold, wet, uh, that will sound very familiar. This wonderful listener let me know that the National Honey Show is going to be online. It's toward the end of October. I will post some information as soon as I get the exact dates, but it's toward the end of October, I do believe. It's going to be free by donation, and that is just amazing. I have no doubt there will be people from all over the world tuning in. So I'm very excited about that. And to get yourself in the mood, if you look on YouTube for the National Honey Show, they put up most of their presentations from their conference, and it is a an incredible collection. The first time I ever ran across that conference was because I had been researching Michael Palmer and found his presentation and it's it's a really good one. But then I subscribe to that channel and have just an endless list of wonderful, high-quality presentations to listen to or watch on YouTube, depending on how you, you do your YouTube. So definitely look out for that. And again, if you know of good state conferences that are coming up and are, that are available to people in other states, let me know, and I will help spread the word. Locally, my own club, Tocane, has hosted some wonderful speakers this fall, also on Zoom. Everybody's just figuring out the Zoom thing. And we hosted, well, we shot a bear. (laughs) The club officers, bless their hearts, and I appreciate them so much, hosted Tina Sebastian of Colorado, who you've also heard on this podcast. It was a great presentation. So if your bee club is looking for a speaker, Tina Sebastian of Fat Mountain Bees in Colorado, and and you'll also recognize her name as a writer of both of the at both of the bee journals. She's a great speaker. That was wonderful. We also hosted our own, our very own Michelle Mejia of Moral Bee Company. She's a queen rear in our area, and she is giving these great Zoom presentations. I'm just excited that people seem to be getting this down pat. <laughs> I can't claim the own. I can't. I cannot claim that I could give uh, one of those. But these folks are wonderful. And so, if you're looking for speakers, both of those that I've heard recently are just delightful. I also think that Ange Roll that I interviewed recently does online presentations. So, if your bee clubs are looking for people, check them out. And speaking of bee journals. I have a wonderful happy thing to tell you. I am so honored to announce that this podcast has reached an agreement with Bee Culture Magazine and American Bee Journal that will enable me to read older articles from their archives to you here on the podcast. Of course, for the new articles, you'll need to subscribe, in which I hope you are anyway. Both Bee Culture and American Bee Journal are really worth the subscription price. Both of them have online editions, and with the online editions, Uh, subscriptions, you get access to the archives, which is what I'll be reading from, my own subscriptions to both of these. I am so excited about this because while I could talk to you all day long about what's going on in my personal bee yard, my experience is is limited in, in years and in type of beekeeping that I do and the microclimate. There's only two that I'm familiar with, the Ozarks and the Appalachians. And if you're not one of those, then many of the things that I might say, wow, work like a charm here in my yard, might not in yours. To be able to dip into the deep well of information and writers and topics that are back in those archives 
and share them occasionally with you. I am just thrilled. So those of you who love Radio Reader Editions are in luck. <laughs> and those of you who don't can just skip those. I have loved it that ever since I read that funny, funny review of the guy who did not like the article reading, which I just, I just loved him. I love, he, it was such great writing. Anytime you get a bad review that is written so well that you love it, that is really good writing. But so many people include even in their reviews on like uh, Apple Podcasts will say, and by the way, I like the Radio Reader Edition. So we'll do we'll do some of those. But the, the benefit to all of us, including me, that I hope is we'll be exposed to uh, a lot of hive mind, you know, the brains of many, many other beekeepers. So I'll be starting with that soon. And if there's any favorite articles that you have, maybe from an older issue, I told them I wouldn't read anything in the last year. In order to pressure everybody to get subscriptions, <laughs> the uh, the in the archives, if there's something anything older than a year in the magazines that was really important to you, maybe helped you turn a corner in your beekeeping, then please let me know. Again, Blue Ridge seven one four at gmail.com. So that's all the announcements. I think here in the bee yard. I've been doing a lot of feeding, <laughs> much more feeding than I have ever done. And that is just because we had the abysmal honey year. And then to make it worse, I don't I don't think my goldenrod in my valley seems to be offering much. Goldenrod is one of those tricky plants. It can bloom beautifully and have no nectar. Some years, others years, it blooms and looks exactly the same. It's full of nectar. And that's the wonderful stinky nectar that you can smell in your bee yard. I have smelled virtually none, which is a huge bummer. And with the amount of fall allergies I have, I really need to get some of Michelle's award-winning goldenrod honey and uh, eat it through the winter to try to get rid of some of those allergies. But anyway, my bees have not been putting on weight. And this is, I've never had a year that they've not put on any weight that I can tell in the fall. And it may be a case that they put a little on and then we would have a rainy week and then they would eat it all up. Then it got kind of chilly. Our leaves have started turning. So they were um, in a little bit, but then now it's gotten warm again. So they're out again. On my farm, there's a ton of aster, a big swath of aster down the creek bank and they're all over it. I don't know if they're getting mostly pollen or some nectar or, or what, but it's not translating to weight in the hives. So what that means is my local grocery store is pretty sure that I have a moonshine still going on from the quantity of sugar that I've been buying. I tend to buy cane sugar just because I was taught that... Um, that beet sugar being a GMO crop, I'm not really that worried about the beets, but the residue from the uh, the residue from the Roundup, while not poisonous particularly to bees in itself, does affect nutrient uptake in the plant, which then of, of course affects the nutrients in the bees, and then perhaps more dramatically, the Roundup residue from research that I've read appears to affect the gut flora. That is critical for life. Our gut flora matter whether we um, live well or live sickly or live at all. So I'm, I feel sensitive to that and I just didn't want to put my finger on the scales in any bad direction of my bees. That said, I may have made a mistake. I mentioned the winter patties that I am going to try. And indeed, I ordered some and they are in my laundry room right now. And I do want to try them, but I noticed that I, I bought the brand that 
where sugar, just plain sugar, is the first ingredient. It was hard to figure, find the ingredient labels before I bought it. And now that I have it, I do see there is some high fructose corn syrup in there, which I'm not happy about. I will probably go ahead and test these out and just see how they do and hope that that's, again, it's not the finger on the scale in any direction. I mean, definitely versus starving, it's going to be better for sure. Now, again, just to be very clear, in my opinion, feeding sugar in the winter is not ideal. It is a, it is about number three on the list of what I prefer to do. The first thing I prefer to do is leave enough of their own capped honey for them to get through winter. The second thing I would prefer to do would be to have other hives that I can Robin Hood frames of capped honey into the light hives, balance everybody up. Sometimes that is just not to be. And that's what this is one of those years. And I don't want all my bees to die just because it was a bad year out there in the weather world in my mountain valley. So yes, I'm going to feed them sugar. There's a million ways you can do it. And actually, I talked a lot about that, I think, last week. There is one clarification I wanted to make on what I talked about last week, and that is when you are feeding in the fall and you're trying to add weight to a hive, and ideally you're trying to add it in time that they have time to get that in the honeycomb, cure it, and cap it just as if it were honey. That's ideal. There are many parts of the country already that that window has closed. If you are southward, then your window's still open to get whatever weight on your bees that they need. But the important part that I, the, that I wanted to clarify was in, in many other podcasts, I talk about trickle feeding. And by that, I mean some slow, steady manner of feeding like the mason jars with the holes in them or something slow that you top off every day, every few days that the bees basically don't get a chance to store it because mostly they're using it. And that is for building up brood and keeping the queen thinking that there's a flow and keeping on laying. In the fall, whereas I might keep on in my yard with with some of these new baby hives, I might keep on trickle feeding even one-to-one to keep my queen laying when there's no nectar out there because I want that population to keep building to the last possible minute. And because I still have tricks in the toolbox of how to add weight to them. So I really will <laughs> steal honeycomb frames out of some of my bigger hives to make sure that my little hives, uh, my little new young baby hives get through. But in the fall, in most cases, particularly if it's a large hive that you need to add weight to fast, you are not going to be doing trickle feeding. You're going to be doing the other kind. I don't know if it has a name, but like let's think of it as bulk feeding. And that is you want to get as much syrup in, as heavy a syrup as you can manage to mix into there as fast as you can so that they will can begin to cap it and then pretend like it's honey. So I'll call that bulk feeding just for simplicity. But that's how you add weight versus trickle feeding, which is when you want them to keep adding baby bees, which might not be what you want to do in your bigger hives. It just depends on on your exact situation. And speaking of those little baby hives, wonderful listener wrote and asked, what's going on? Are you going to do the bees in the shed again? And my friend Jeff said, hey, are you going to do your observation hive again? And yes to both. On the observation hive, after having bees in the house, and this is a glass, well actually a plexiglass sided single frame width. So it's just one frame wide, but it's four frames high. And because I use mediums, I guess it would probably be more like two deeps or three deeps if you did it that way. But the one I have is four medium frames, 
that's it. That's the total. And and they're stacked on top of each other with plexiglass. So it's so obviously it has to be inside or they'd freeze to death in the heartbeat if it was outside. Then it had there's a tube that goes through the wall or the window so they can f- fly. And they do fly in warm days. The observation hive taught me so much. I'm in love with it. And I do not think I could get through a winter without being able to lay eyes on those beautiful bees. That was my favorite part. I'm actually to hear them. They're quite noisy. So keep that in mind where you place your observation hive. They do a lot of buzzing and they're very interactive with the with the weather. That was something I didn't anticipate, but just watching them and seeing what they do and watching them contract and expand was amazing. So yes, and what I'm doing with the observation hive and which, uh, Jeff, by the way, I did not keep them in the house over the summer. In the spring, Stubby, the famous she was the landing party that I didn't even really expect to survive, but she did. Stubby was a leftover mating nuke from fall of 2019. I mean, tiny. It was a, a nuke that had swarmed uh, because I had been growing it up enough to at least be outside in the shed or or even in the yard. And then they swarmed and then they requeened incredibly late Maybe there was uh, two frames of bees, two medium frames of bees at the most, and that was stretching it. And the little queen was tiny, and so I named her Stubby, and she came in the house for the winter. Well, Stubby kicked butt all winter, and then absolutely kicked it into gear in the spring, filled up that hive in no time. I had to take it away. Actually, I just took it outside, outside the window, and transferred those frames into a nuke box, let them settle down. And then I ended up moving them and reorienting and getting them in the yard. Well, Stubby grew up, built a big, beautiful hive, made honey, swarmed. (laughs) She was one of those that was on my list. I'm like, "Mm, I need to go check on this one because this is one that has not had a brood break. And so I need to look and see what their mite situation is. And when I checked on her, they had swarmed, had requeened. So Stubby 2 is out there in a nice uh, hive in the yard and is going to go through the winter in the yard like grown-up bees. So I'm looking around the nukes that I made for the tiniest one. Now, it's funny because I do have a tiny one. It's a retired queen that, honest to goodness, I've just kind of been waiting for her to go to glory because I'm not fond of her. She's not very nice. But by golly, she will not give it up. She is just still going. And so I thought about her, but then I thought, you know, that would be a real bummer because if if she dies in the winter, uh, it's not that easy to set up an observation hive, you know, if the bees aren't flying. I mean, I don't think it's probably even possible. So I may pick one of my others to come in the house because that might just, (laughs) that just might not be good to have a queen I'm not really that fond of. They're right there in my house with me. So the observation hive, absolutely, yes, going to get that set back up. I do have to pick a small one or probably what I'll do is I'll I'll take uh, three frames of bees out of the nuke, add a frame of stores, put it in the observation hive, and then let the flying bees from and the leftover bees from that nuke just combine it with another nearby one so that I won't start out with too many bees because I you actually on the observation hives you need to start out with as few of bees as possible so that as they build up so that you'll have time in the spring to get them out get them outside because they really do boom from not having to work so hard to to stay warm. I'll talk to you much more about the observation hive. It is just, I love it so much. And I got the idea from Michael Bush's website and then the bees in the shed. For longtime listeners, you know about the bees in the shed. It was an experiment last winter to see if I could get very small nucleus colonies that were basically late summer queens in a very, uh, in a very small setup through the winter. 
in my particular microclimate, even with insulation, even with ganging them, I, I have not been able to get the smallest configurations through winter, but mainly because of our temperature ups and downs. It might not get super cold for a long time, but it can get get quite cold quite suddenly. And that took out a lot of nukes when I was trying to figure it out in the yard. The shed, which is just an uninsulated storage shed that happens to be on my farm, I tried out last year, put again tubes, kind of hole, hole in the wall of the shed that matches up with the hole in the wall hole in a <laughs> uh, entrance of a nuke. And so it, they are free flying. And this is to differentiate from what they do way up north, which is store closed up hives in sheds in areas that, you know, where the temperature reliably stays down all winter. Our temperature does not reliably stay down. It goes up and down, up and down. And that's actually its own particular can of worms that I've learned over the years that um, because the you know, the Vermont beekeepers might chuckle at you, but that your temperatures and the length of winter isn't that bad. But the up and down is its whole separate problem that you have to get used to. And for me, from what I, at least from last year's experience, the shed has been the ticket. It's like I said, it's not insulated. It's not, it's just a wooden shed out there. It's fairly wind tight and definitely watertight. I had the, the nucleus colony sitting on a little shelf, each one going out a hole in the wall. The idea came, <laughs> well, the idea came actually from a photo from the, I don't know, late 1800s from Beach Mountain here in Western North Carolina. This guy with uh, his hives in a shed, which was probably back then, probably to keep the bear out of them as much as anything else. There have been several things on YouTube that I saw. And then there's a Canadian beekeeper whose name is slipping my mind at the moment that I really enjoy watching his YouTube videos. And he keeps a bunch of nukes in a shed uh, for the winter. And so it's worked great for me. The only losses I had in the shed were absolute beekeeper error to do with miscalculating how much food they had left versus how much they would need as they began to expand. So I'm going to be more careful with that in the uh, this year, and that's actually what the winter patties are all about because they're it is kind of complicated inspecting nukes in a shed because if the bees are flying enough and they get out in the shed, then they cluster around the window of the shed. If it's too cold outside for them to fly back to their entrance, then they die, which is not okay. And then um, otherwise, they're just a huge annoyance because there's a big clump of bees. For some reason, as smart as a bee is, if there's glass in the window, even if you open the window, they have trouble getting out the window. So that is a design flaw <laughs> of this shed, that the windows are just not made in a way that it's easy to let the bees out. But so, yes, that's a very long Answer for a short question. The shed will be going this 2020, Lord willing. And right now, actually, what I've done is um, actually what a lot of what I'm doing right now is moving little mating nukes is what will fit in the hatch of a Subaru over to a yard several miles from me that I just use. I don't keep bees there all the time, but the the person loves to hang out with the bees, <laughs> but doesn't want to go to the trouble of beekeeping. So they give me space in their yard and I have a pallet there to just sit nukes while they reorient to the uh, location. And then once they're reoriented there, I can bring them back here to the farm and put them wherever I want. The shed bees are in the process of reorienting. Some of the questions that have come in from beginners that are finding themselves with puny, not so good looking colonies this time of year, just to cut to the chase, probably unless you're in a much warmer area than me, it's probably just too late to worry about getting another queen. Now, if you're in a warmer area, obviously this, does, this probably doesn't apply, but it, 
from from North Carolina up, there are no, at least here in the high mountains of North Carolina, when I look in my hives, there are no drones, zero, none. They have, they ditched those guys a long time ago. Actually, they ditched them more to do with the dearth of nectar than to do with any type of cold weather. But man, when that light started going down and the nectar dried up, those poor fellows were out on the porch and now they're gone. And I have not seen a drone in I, it's what seems like a long time. So that would be an absolute loss to try to mate a queen, even if the weather's beautiful. So my advice to a lot of people that have written me who I talk to about their bees, at this stage in almost in most places, you just want to combine if it's not sick. Now I'm just talking, you don't want to you might not want to combine it if it's sick with your with your good hive. And if it's just too small, then now I would think about getting rid of the less successful queen and combining the hives, usually with newspaper. The exception to getting a new queen on a hive would be that if I went and I found a hive right now that was just not looking right or um just didn't have the population or was a late swarm that never really got traction or whatever, just not enough, then all these little spare nukes that I made over the late summer, which partly are intended to be my honey production hives next spring, but they also serve a really great purpose of being able to rescue any hive that has a queen accident of some type this time of year when I can't mate a queen here and it would be even be difficult to buy queens from anywhere. So that's just the beauty of having those spare nucleus. And if you have gone with the spare nucleus plan that I am always uh, cheering on, <laughs> then you've got a spare. In fact, you may have a spare. You're like, ah, oh, how am I going to get this nuke through the winter? And then it's amazing. One of your good hives will suddenly, for whatever reason, go queenless. And you're like, oh, no problem. You just combine them with a newspaper and all is good. You've got a young queen to take that population that otherwise you would have lost um, to take to take that population as part of their own and have a good colony through the winter. This is where the payoff comes in of, of raising those summer new. So last podcast here on the main channel, I talked about addressing the stores. Basically, in getting ready for winter, there's just a handful of items. One is to make sure they're queen right. And I'm going to tell you about why I have them in this order. So one is to make sure they're queen right. And two is to make sure they have enough stores. The reason I put those at the top is not that they are always the most important, but they are the ones you can absolutely do something about. You can take action. If they're not queen right, and if it's too late to get or make a queen, you can combine them. If they don't have enough stores, you can feed them. So those two things are very actionable, even now, late in the season. So number three, I would say, is their health and their mite history. That's something that if you discover now that those items have gone awry, it's hard. That's a, there may not be a fix for that. There may not be an action you can take this late in the season to, to definitely rescue your hive. If it's a mite issue, of course, there are treatments that one could try but they've been exposed to mites all through the fall, so it's very possible that they may succumb to a virus issue. I mean, give it a shot, nothing left, le- nothing left to lose, and definitely better than definitely losing them by not taking care of it. Getting the queen right, making sure they have stores, making sure they're healthy, and knowing their mite history and situation. And then number four, I'm just going to call cozy factors. <laughs> and that is, um, and this is something I was discussing with one of the patrons talking about her bees, is that I am very attentive to how much space the bees have, the population versus their boxes. And I like the bees to be cozy in their boxes. And I will go to some trouble that 
if I see that the population as the fall progresses into winter, and if the population is small compared to the number of boxes that they have, then I will try to sneak around and on a warm day get those extra boxes uh, off there. They're usually the bottom boxes. Because I feel like there's just so many problems that are prevented by keeping them cozy in their space. And it's not just warm. It's uh, some to do with getting to the honey that they need and also having less surface area that can get in trouble with pests. But speaking of cozy in the sense of being warm, I will talk more about this in the next episode. Insulation is a very interesting topic to me. I definitely am still figuring it out. So many beekeepers, particularly commercial beekeepers, will say bees don't need insulation. If your cluster is big enough going into winter, you don't need insulation. And that is absolutely true. It's a good thing because on their scale, if they did, they'd probably be, it'd be incredibly difficult to manage a bunch of hives with insulation. So what I've noticed that they tend to do is to build up their hives and their colonies and have genetics that build up extremely large colonies so that the bees can be their own heaters through the winter. Well, I mean, they're always going to be their own heaters, but their own heaters and their own insulation. I have noticed, because I work a lot with with small colonies of late summer young colonies that then I'm trying to get through the winter so that they can bust out and become incredible honey producers in in the spring, even starting from a from a very small unit that does not take much uh, space or much food to get through the winter. And so dealing with those smaller formats, I really noticed a little insulation goes a long way. Now, the main thing to insulate is, of course, the the top cover, the very top outer cover, because that is a main killer of bees. As you know, it's like in every single bee book and bee article in the world. When the, the warm, wet exhalations of the bees move up the hive through that hole in the center and hit that cold lid, it forms water droplets that then In the north, they freeze, and then on a warm day, they drip down and kill the bees. Down here, it might be the next morning (laughs) when the sun comes out. That water drips down on the bees, gets them wet, and kills them dead as a doornail. And also, it's just ugly. It is just ugly to clean up a hive that died that way. And I have killed hives that way accidentally. I was well aware that I needed ventilation, but through some mechanical error, in one case, it was simply pushing a pushing a telescoping cover too far in one direction and it closed up the vent on a very big hive that I had and they died. It was horrible. It was like, you know, there were eight inches of of dead bees down in the bottom of the hive. It was just awful. So I'm very aware that insulation is a double-edged sword. Insulation, when I have done it right, let me just put it that way, has really made a difference. They don't use as much honey. They don't, I've never had them run, I never had the situation to where they die from being in their cluster, not being able to get to their honey. And I would attribute that to on warm days because I don't insulate, I don't insulate all four sides. I just insulate the three back sides. And that way on a warm day, shining on that hive, it does warm up enough for them to move around and get honey if they want, which is a thing. Ventilation must be addressed, whether you use insulation or not. But if you, that was Merkel. Thank you, Merkel. So insulation must be coupled with an attention to ventilation, and we'll talk more about that. If you want to look back in the meantime, about this time last year, it's probably in October, I did an episode where I read, or sometime in the winter, fall or winter of last year, where I read an article about insulation. And it's a 
excellent article. If I hadn't read it already, I'd read it to you now, but go back and find that one um, about some of the technicalities of insulation. But the, the simplest thing it, to me in the world is to add a sheet of foam insulation, the hard uh, pink board or blue board, under your telescoping top cover. It's a total no big deal thing, and it reduces the dripping down on your bees drastically and immediately. And so it does not affect your insulation You, if you you know have everything open in the top per usual. So that's just a super easy thing to do. For me, for on a hobby level, if you're in a wet climate like mine, I think the next, uh, the real Cadillac thing would be the quilt boxes. Once again, I'm heading into fall. Have I built my quilt boxes? No. (laughs) I have intended to build quilt boxes for years now, which shows that they're not required, but I was very influenced by a blogger that I respect a lot talking about how her survival rate went up so drastically when the one thing that she changed was using quilt boxes with her hives. And there's just something to it. It makes sense to me. It mimics what is happening in a natural tree cavity. I'll probably talk to you more about quilt boxes later too. And actually from last year, was it from last year or from earlier this year on the Patreon page, I have a photo collection that I collected off the web of various designs of quilt boxes. So if you feel moved, if you want to become a patron of this podcast and help it keep going, I would so welcome you. That's at patreon.com slash fiveapple, F-I-V-E-A-P-P-L-E. All right, I'll draw this to a close. I'll be talking to you next week, probably more about winter things, but who knows? I may find a fabulous article to read to you that covers it. Oh, the other good thing about attending the Georgia Bee Conference, which you know when you do those Zoom conferences, you can chat with people on the side. So in those chats, I rounded up at least three great beekeepers to interview on the podcast with you later this winter. All right, take care. Have a wonderful week. Take care of each other. Tell all the people you love that you love them. All right, I'm thinking about you all and I appreciate you every single one. Bye-bye.